All right. Hi, Henry. It's been a long time. Uh, two weeks is like forever in crypto, right? How are you doing? Fantastic. I'm excited about this. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I regret not doing it last week, but uh, that's life. That's life. Could you give us some updates on uh, what you've been up to over the last couple of weeks? Absolutely. Uh, so great news uh, was selected by the Refinable uh, Art Curation team as one of the first creators to come on to the space in beta. Uh, the, the, the beta of their main net is, is going live and there was a voting process um, through their uh, community of about 100,000 members and uh, was one of the artists that received the most votes to be selected as as an artist on the site. So uh, that is great news. I've uh, been working on um, developing a portfolio for the launch. Um, next week, I have a uh, phone interview or not interview, but conversation or dialogue with uh, one of the art curators for Refinable. Uh, he'll be calling from the West Coast of the United States, I believe, uh, probably Tuesday, and to discuss their um, the objectives, they, you know, what is the process that they're developing uh, to market and develop their NFT artist portfolios, um, probably going over a little bit about you know, the timeline of what I'm launching and uh, maybe there may be some curatorial um, suggestions by them. And so we'll be looking at portfolios and things like that. And that, that will all happen next week. Probably we'll go live with some early minting offers on refinable and beta beginning, I would say, if not the end of next week, early in the week to follow. Cool, cool. Congrats. You said there's a lot of people trying to get on there, right? But you were one of the lucky ones. That's awesome. Yeah. So for now, um, it's all representation basis. So like they're representing, uh, they're selecting artists to be represented by Refinable in, at this phase. And I do believe that at some point in the future uh, that in mainnet, it's going to be a, a public marketplace similar to Rarible in that you can come on and until you're verified, your sort of public identity will remain somewhat um, uh, off the grid. And then you apply for verification. So this stable of artists that are coming under Refinable now um, essentially are the verified artists, the first verified artist group uh, to come on. There's, there's Rarible. I'm more familiar with that one. And then there's Refinable. What, what does the name mean? Or how is it that much different from Rarible? Is there... Is their uh, take on it completely different or you think it's going to end up being about the same at the end? Well, it really depends on, you know, the functionality, what their focus ends up being. I mean, there's so many ways to look at uh, these these different sites. And I think they're all sort of in development phase. I mean, without a doubt, they are. And they're they're all trying to define their identity. Um And they're taking suggestions from creators, which is wonderful. I, you know, I. I work hand in hand with the with the CEO of Uptick a lot, and he takes a lot of suggestions from the community to heart. Um, and I think Refinable is going to do the same thing. Rarible, you know, being sort of like first to the market as a dominant uh, public space, uh, they came on very early and very strong, and you know, justifiably they own the marketplace. 
uh, but, you know, by volume. And that's probably going to continue for some time. Um, I don't think that Refinable is trying to be rareable. I think they're going to focus more on uh, fine art creators than what you see on Rarible, which is a bit of a wild, wild west where everybody comes on and does what they want. And about 90% of the creators on there are sort of similar in that they're focused on collectibles like uh, trading cards, um, you know, uh, fashionista, um, uh, like the cyber, uh, the cyberpunks, you know, uh, pixelated um, critters and whatnot, like the crypto kitties, you know, that sort of the traditional collectible that you could have bought in the analog world. Well, here now it is available in the digital world. And that's what you're seeing mostly on Rarible. Um, but Uptick is looking to be very much sort of compartmentalized where they have focus categories. And one of them happens to be tickets online and ways in which you know, digitizing and monetizing experiences in the analog world. So like events and things like that, where you're able to um, mint and, and monetize experiences. So there's one focus with an uptick. And then you have uh, a less developed, um, what do you call it? Uh, the sort of arena of the artist, the you know, minting art. That's, I believe uptick is gonna have a strength there uh, because it seems like the majority of people that have uh, moved on to uptick are in their own way more traditional fine artists and they're digitizing and trying to monetize um, you know their work and their portfolios so I don't see a lot of the collectible tradables on, on uptick so far uh, it does have a much much smaller crowd uh, visiting it but that's all going to change in the near future and then uh, refinable again I really see this as the way in which they, they, they came out of the gate developing a stable of artists to verify and focus on really leads me to believe that their main focus is going to be more like super rare, um, you know, or a foundation um, platforms that are hyper-focused on, you know, drops and marketing the drops and having a stable of representative artists and building their, careers with them hand in hand. Uh, so a lot of familiarity for me as, as you know, coming from the analog world as an artist, that's what galleries do. They build relationships with artists, they represent those artists, and they try to develop their careers to benefit everybody involved. Uh, a couple of follow-up questions there. Uh, refinable, is that going to be using Ethereum or do they have a native token or how does the gas work on refinable? So they have a native token. It's called Fine. Uh, right now, the, really the only place that you can uh, buy Fine is on PancakeSwap. That's all going to change very quickly. Um, the, the Refinable is on uh, the Binance Smart Chain. It's the first uh, NFT marketplace that's going to be launching on 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 in partnership with Binance. Uh, uh, Chez, the CEO from Finance is an investor in Refinable, as is uh, Mr. Beast, who's a, a bit of a YouTube star. You know, if you ask your children, they probably know who Mr. Beast is. Uh, but he's a very, very popular YouTube star, and he's an investor and an influencer who's working with Refinable. 
Um, but the gas, gas is going to be fine. Uh, but the, the purchase of work on refinable is going to be with BNB. So if you wanted to buy uh, work on um, refinable or you want, as an artist want to mint works for sale on, on refinable, you're going to do that with Binance coin. And, it, and it's the uh, smart chain Binance coin, the BEP20. Okay, and there was one other thing I wanted to confirm. You said you, you often speak with the CEO of Uptick and you said uh, you're expecting some changes. Is there anything you can talk about there? Are they gonna step up the marketing or have you heard anything? You know, I, all I can say right now is that the, the phase of marketing the project out of testnet into more of a you know beta solution that is then available to the masses that we're, we're entering that phase so uptick is actually really fantastic in the way that they i mean i've i've almost it seems like twice a week now uh we're getting updates that are streamlining you know uh, issues or elaborating on functionality and you know and i'm i'm really really impressed with Uptick, and they've they're doing a fantastic job. Uh, I do know for a fact that they're about to head into a phase of of marketing the sort of next the next step, which is going to be kind of a beta offered to the public. Um, they've really held, they've really limited over the last six to eight weeks that I've been working with Uptick. They've really limited the amount of activity that's uh, going on, and they're not advertising you know what they're doing at all and the, yeah that's about to change so that's about to the extent in which i could i could speak to that okay uh, i think i noticed i don't know in the last week or so you uh you're going to meet with uh the psychology department at john fisher college in new york uh can you tell us how that went yeah uh, so i have actually had a working relationship with this university for several years um you know being a post-traumatic disorder sufferer my most of my adult life and the way in which art has always functioned as an externalization therapy for myself meaning i have utilized my own artistic process as also a therapeutic healing process and in doing that over all these years i sort of developed a lot of insight about how it can be effective and um, maybe about four years ago, my therapist at the time uh, was also uh, one of the uh, psychologists uh, in, I mean, I'm sorry, a professor of psychology at St. John Fisher College. He had asked me if I would be willing to come in and work with his grad level classes uh, in discussing both my process and how I utilized it personally. And ways in which uh, young uh, psychotherapists coming out of university could utilize art as a therapeutic approach, especially when dealing with trauma sufferers. The main concern with trauma sufferers is this kind of um, isolation and repression, especially of the experience. And so, you know, that repression, you know, the repression of what happened is, is really vital to understanding the sort of like the symptoms of PTSD sufferers. And 
what they call um, intrusive thoughts or suicidal ideation, um, in the intense levels of, of depression that, 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 that can be experienced, that most of that it stems from repression. So when you, when you work with traditional uh, like when you say you work with a, a veteran of war coming back from you know the, a theater in Iraq or whatever, and they've had trauma, it's extremely important that they externalize and get to a point where they can comfortably externalize and, and, and work through you know, what they call in the therapy uh, models as uh, sort of like stuck points, right? The, the things that you believe to be true that may not be true necessarily, but it's all sort of folds into your psychoses. So that being said, as I started to work with the grad level classes um, ab about the output, the throughput of, of pain, suffering, ideation, all that which, you know, a PTSD sufferer, trauma sufferer would be hyper-focused on and being debilitated by, I have, I was able to express and explain and, and, and teach these young uh, psychotherapists in training how to work with their um, patients with an art as therapy. So that's how the relationship began with the university. And uh, I, several times a year, I go in and give workshops for the students. So that has developed into what is, there's a great need in, in, in therapy for visual models and visual models or reference models reference expressions of these internalized experiences, whether you're dealing with uh, human sexuality, the positive and the negative side of that, or depression, the positive, the negative, um, uh, suicide. I mean, you, there's no, in every example of mental health across the world through all genders, I mean, you could be talking about, you know, um, the, what it means to be, you know, a, a transgender, non-binary, and what is the experience in a public space with regards to, you know, um, the ways in which society treats them and, and how that affects their psychology. Like, so when you think about the whole concept of mental health or the whole arena of mental health, there's an endless array of situations that have very specific dynamics. And so if I say, if I'm a therapist and I say I'm speaking with a patient and specifically to their life circumstance, that what's happening in their head, there is a, a narrative that a, a therapist will develop a, with the patient around their experience of their mental health as it's deteriorated wherever it is in the moment. That narrative that's, that develops around the sufferer's experience has within it a whole array of sort of like expressive points, right? I could say that uh, somebody might say, well, I'm depressed and it feels like, you know, I'm completely isolated. I'm, you know, I, I can't hear anybody talk outside myself. I, you know, I, I can't get out of bed. So this is all, these are all like sort of key points in the narrative. So what they want me to do is they're going to take this idea of narrative prompts. We're going to take the idea of a narrative prompt where 
a patient, a professor, a student at the grad level, they're going to develop around some particular mental health issue, a narrative prompt for me then to take and create an interpretive work that will then become cataloged as a visual representation of that mental health concern. And the reason for this is that there is no catalog that exists at the moment at the university level for them to work with in ways in which are sort of unique and outside the box, right? It's, it's a way of developing um, for the university system um, in the abstract, a way to build dialogues um, around the mental health issues in class, right? So it's, it's basically the, the, as it's conceived now, and I, I imagine that it's going to develop further, um, this catalog, which will be built in an online way where any uh, student could access it, you know, uh, with knowledge that it exists and that it could be used as part of the curriculum uh, in, in many creative ways, which are, you know, the development of how this catalog of, of visual references to the narrative prompts is going to develop um, use cases that's ongoing. Uh, so from there, once we develop the catalog, um, which is going to be ongoing as of now, I've already received a series of prompts from grad level therapists who are working with teenagers um, with mental health issues. And they sat down and gave me my first three prompts, which I'll be working on this upcoming week for the university. Um, so that's exciting. But from there, uh, once we it's, I guess essentially it's a pilot program right now that's going to be developed at St. John Fisher with the goal of moving that pilot program to, uh, you know, of access made available to all university systems around the United States and internationally. And my main contact with St. John Fisher is um, he's a Ugandan uh, native who moved here to go to university and has remained here his whole adult life. But he works in Uganda uh, every summer in Uganda, uh, for people who don't know, is like many countries in, in Africa, uh, at the tail end of a, a two and a half decades long civil war, uh, probably 10 years removed uh, since the last you know, real violence. And the country is in tatters and it has a population that's probably in the 60, 70 percent of which has uh, post-traumatic stress disorder because of the civil war. And there's a um, complete lack of psychotherapists. There's a lack of professionals to deal with the problem there. So everything that we're doing as a pilot program uh, at St. John Fisher is also being considered as a, a, a something to be brought over to Uganda and its neighbors uh, for their therapists to work with uh, in these war-torn countries. So it's a, a lot of lofty goals right now, um, but because my whole life has sort of been in and out of the mental health system, and I've you know worked through my own uh, traumas successfully, uh, it just, I don't know, naturally and organically uh, grew out of um, my efforts to share how art has helped me and saved my life. It's really interesting. Okay, uh, a couple of things I want to confirm there. So 
when you were talking about the catalog, what came to my mind was sort of like, uh, you know, in the movies, they're looking for the bad guy and there's all the mug shots. So this catalog would be like several images that you created and the person who needs help would point at a picture that best describes how they're feeling or what their condition is. And then the psychologist or psychotherapist would be able to work from there because it's hard to communicate exactly how one feels. Is that, am I on the right track? Yeah. Interestingly, um, yes. I mean, that's a track. So again, like that it's a pilot right now, all of the ways in which like it's use cases as, as we, we can refer to as use cases, it's going to be sort of like twofold right now. Immediately I could say, yeah, on the one hand, you're going to have, um, this catalog that will be utilized by therapists in training as a way to dig deeper into um, mental health concerns. So like, let's say the catalog will have, you know, it's going to be compartmentalized, right? You'll have like situational depictions of, you know, what is experienced by people with bipolar disorder, people with schizophrenia, people with borderline personality disorder, severe depression, uh, suicidal ideation, intrusive thoughts, racing thoughts. Um, and those prompts that will come for me to interpret visually will be fleshed out more so than just depression, right? It'll be, it'll have some sort of like metaphorical um, suggestion uh, as to what people are experiencing, right? Most people, when they talk about their mental health with their therapist, the, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say literally what you're experiencing. So, so there's going to be a lot of sort of like colorful language that, that's part of these prompts that I'm working from. Then, as you said, that is one way that it could be utilized in practice, right? Is you could open up a catalog, you can open up the catalog or sit with your, your, your patient, you could go through this catalog and try to find um, sort of things that, that, that relate that they'll identify with visually. And, you know, a, a great many people in this world can't find words to say what they wish they could say, especially in a therapist's office. It's, you know, you know it's, it's sort of like by its very nature, difficult to discuss because your, your whole identity is wrapped up in a particular pain or a particular, um, um, you know, psychodynamic and it's it's sort of like you know you're in that cage and it's very difficult to get out of it so the, the, in this one way is sort of like yes here are prompts this is a, a place where we can start dialogue which is what art is for so ideally this catalog of work that i create is going to be um, um dramatic enough and relevant enough uh in in its relatability that it could help prompt dialogues in practice to your point and it'd be cross-cultural too right you could use it in any country it's it's really cool and collect all the data and it's awesome exactly exactly yeah and and i mean i and i'm as much as i am going to work diligently to to fill out this um catalog it is also something that I'm going to pass on as a torch. So once we it's fully developed as a system, so to speak, uh, or a, an academic tool um, or a tool for practice in therapy, that at, at that point, you know, I would I would expect that the moment it leaves, 
you know, the pilot program at St. John Fisher and become successful by other universities that those universities could then, and I think this is going to be part of the project, that other artists would come in and further develop the catalog, right? So obviously I'm not going to be the sole artist responsible for developing this catalog forevermore, but the, the whole concept doesn't exist, only it's coming to be now. So we need to really figure out the sort of infrastructure and, and how once handing it over to, to, a, to another um, university or giving other universities access to it, that folded into that offering, folded into that whole tool, that whole package is how they go about bringing uh, other creators into the fold if that's something that they wanna do or have access to. Right. So it, it, you know, it's layers and layers of complexity right now. But again, it's just in its in, it's in its inception, you know, and we're working on building this pilot. Exciting. And I was just thinking, like, you know, there's so much stigma about mental health that if this is you know, available online at some point, you know, people that are afraid to talk about how they're feeling could you know, maybe get some advice and see, you know, other people that sort of identified with the same image. You know, it'd be a starting point at least to get some help. It's good. Yep. No, public access is definitely in the mix. And again, it's just really figuring out right now the foundational steps that we need to take. And, um, you know, in an, an organization, you know, how do we organize it online? Uh, obviously, the catalog is going to need to be uh, digital, um, but, you know, there's room to there's room for, uh, you know, physical catalogs, you know, having having like, a, you know, a, a textbook so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, could be created from the catalog, you know, or you could do uh, individual chapters of a textbook that are all focusing sort of like the, the structure of the online catalog will just be sort of reflected in, in the academic catalog. Um, so it's, again, it's, we're, it's amazing. Um, you know, it's, I'm, I definitely consider it part of my life's work and I'm looking forward to it, but we have a lot of work to do, lots of work to do. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, before we move on and uh, talk about art, are there any other updates you want to talk about? Uh, I don't know if there's a new project you're working on that you haven't mentioned or some, something in the pipeline you want to let us know about? So, you know, I, I love, I'm, I've, been, I've been thinking a lot about this culture of influencers. And, you know, it's really fascinating to me that how does one go about becoming an influencer? It's, is it personality? Is it, uh, you know, time and place? Uh, you, you know, you knew the right people was something that did you hit on a viral something, you know, earlier on and that, that led your, to the development of your significant following. Um, something fascinating about the idea of the influencer. And so I would say if there was a new project, it's just that I've been sort of like interpreting influencers out of a out of a fascination uh, for the idea because their identity is all you know online it's in social media but their voice is more than so the sort of disenfranchised you know um, <sighs> masses I mean they, they've risen above the fray and and so I I, I feel like they're worthy of um, you know, my focus. And so I have been in building a collection 
of interpretations of celebrity and influencers. You know, I have a lot of different projects that are going right now. Um, the I had created a, a, a body of work around climate crisis. I, I'm a big fan of uh, Greta Thornburg. And um, so I, I had developed this project for, for her foundation. And there's uh, eight works. Each of the work is sort of variations on a theme um, that uses as its subject matter, um, believe it or not, the uh, mummified corpse of a red fox and how I could use that symbol of, you know, death in nature as a way of commenting on all of the many ways in which, you know, man in the Anthropocene or, you know, man's impact on nature is unfolding at this ridiculous clip that it is. And, you know, I, everything to me feels apocalyptic when it went with regards to, you know, our impact on nature. So, you know, I, I, I developed that series. I offered it to the foundation as something that they could auction off to raise money for their, for their, um, their goals, you know, their, their work in uh, around the world. And they said um, that they would absolutely love to participate and help market such an auction, but they do not have the technical savvy or understanding of the NFT market at the moment. Uh, so that's something that's I'm going to be thinking about probably for the summer, um, how to develop a auction. And now that I'm working with Refinable I'm, or, or Uptick, depending on where, where they are, probably one of these platforms that I'm, I have been developing relationships with, I'm going to see if there's a way in which we can get this uh, inter, like an international auction off uh, where all the proceeds will be donated to uh, Greta Thunberg's uh, foundation. So that's working. Yep. The uh, Elemental Elegies is for the moment on hold. And I, we, when we start moving into the conversations about art, I'll explain more about um, so sort of what's going on and why it's going on. Yeah, I was going to move on to the art, but just now you mentioned climate change and that. And later on, I was going to ask you, I don't know if it's too uh, complicated to to just list them off, but what, what are the social justice uh, issues that you're most uh, interested in right now? Is there like a, a top five list that you're kind of focusing on at the moment other than climate change? You know, uh, I, mean, I mean, fundamentally, I just live and breathe concern. Um you know, my, I fell into the social justice work, I guess, if you want to call it social justice work, but I've always been sort of activistic. Um, I've always held the belief that protest is a right and that the only way to make a difference for an individual without a platform, especially if you are an individual, you the best thing you can do in your life is to carry on the torch of dialogue, constantly keep the conversation going at the individual level. As you develop a platform, let's say as, an, as a young artist, you know, your platform is going to be through galleries or now maybe through online and social media. And so 
you have a slightly larger reach and you can't control your say the effectiveness of your concern you can't control the effectiveness of your activism right mm. but you can ensure that it's ongoing and you know so you asked what are my top five that's so for me that's not really a way i would look at it it's just in the moment on a daily basis uh, i you know i'm very driven by um in situ you know the idea of in the moment what is most pressing and and it's you know this past year as you know living in the united states of america you know i have i, I just you know racial relations um is a very complex issue in in, in this country it always has been but it is reached you know, it's reached a boiling point that it needed to reach. And there's a lot of sort of like politicizing going on here. And for me, I think it's been really important to get at the raw emotion and sort of uh, emphasize the raw emotion because it's the truth for people who are feeling that, that raw emotion. And so the work that I focused on a lot has been in dialogue with this raw emotion that's erupting all around the country. And, you know, some, uh, some sort of compare and contrast of, of the history of the problem, you know, going back to uh, slavery in the country, but, you know, also how racism has just, you know, it's it's this thing that happens everywhere. It's this thing that happens at, at all times, every day around the world. You know, difference is looked down upon. And, you know, the the root of the problem is what? What is the root of the problem? I mean, how can we say that the root of the problem isn't, you know, bigotry or isn't this sort of hyper nationalistic sense of in, you know, um, um, privilege over people who don't look like you, that if you came to power, if you have control that, you know, you just, somehow you're going to maintain that control by, you know, opp oppressing a particular population. You know, there's a lot of racist, bigotist people in, the, in this country, half the country, uh, half this, you know, half the country is racist. I, it's, it's terrible. So I don't know how the problem is fixed other than it, it, it will need to be constantly addressed. So race relations has been for me a, a major focus for most of my adult life. Um, and it, it'll be ongoing work until, I don't know, I don't know if it ever ends. Um, certainly the world we live in, you know, is the world that my children are inheriting is a, is a, is an important, is an important focus of mine. Um, I, was, I was talking briefly about the Greta Thunberg collection, but everything's impromptu. Um, you know, it's hard to say that I am sort of like, you know, I have a list and I'm going to get up and today I'm going to work on this problem and tomorrow I'm going to work on it. I really don't work like that. Uh, I'm a very emotional, emotionally driven person. So whatever, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's also part of that art, the artistic process, like who you are as an artist, 
how you work. I mean, there's a, there's a certain amount of controlled chaos in what I do. And, um, you know, my drive is sort of, um, limitless. So, I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I hope that helps. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. It, I mean, it shows, well, to me at least that you're really genuine and sincere and like, you don't have a list you go through one through five and then restart from the top. It's that's, that's, uh, that's how it should be. Uh, let's thank you for that. Let's jump on to uh, the art one. So last time you were saying, I'm trying to remember the quote here that uh, the objective of art is not to re reproduce reality, but to create a reality of the same intensity or more. Uh, have you thought about that more since we last spoke or do you want to elaborate on, on what art is? So I think what art is, if you, if you think about the way in which art history and human history intertwine and you go back to the beginning, like say the, the cave paintings that, uh, you know, they've just recently discovered amazing, amazing, uh, 40,000, 50,000 year old. See, it's the oldest and largest collection of, of what, we, what we would consider as cave art, right? In, in the middle of the Amazon rainforest, you know, you go back to look at how the visual, visualized world around us came to be through the creators of the day back when we were, you know, um, hunter gatherers it was about it was about recording right it was about teaching telling a story that could be passed along this is you know 50,000 years ago there's there's a need for generational um sharing right and so that visual record was meant as a dialogue with future generations or an existing generation. And it's also a way, I think it's important of solidifying a permanent record and paying homage to your time and place. Like that a creator 50,000 years ago felt impassioned to put that on a wall. It, you know, its meaning was multifold for the, for the community, it was a record and a teaching tool. And for the individual, it was an homage to that person's life in that time and place. And there's no difference between, you know, that hunter gatherer doing that and us getting up on a daily basis and working to both create a record of our time and place and to pay homage uh, to my own experience of that time and place, and to hopefully um, open up a platform where dialogue can happen about what's important now. And as you come through from 50,000 years ago to today, you know, I don't see, there have been times and periods in art history where, you know, in retrospect, culture at large had a greater influence on how on what was being made and how versus times where art itself had a greater influence on culture at large and by that i mean is 
you know, what we see throughout art history is a slow distancing from the establishment where, you know, in the Middle Ages, you know, you had monarchies, you had kings, you had queens, and artists worked, if they were so lucky enough, they worked for, you know, they worked for royalty. Uh, you, if you were an artisan, like, you know, Michelangelo, you were employed by the, you know, by the king, uh, or you were employed by the Vatican. You know, art, art was in service to royalty. And therefore, you know, what was respected and what was normative about art was sort of imposed, you know, stylistics, aesthetics, you know, the, the choices that artists made were taught to them in reference to what was expected by some larger source of power because they were going to employ you in the sense that they're going to pay you to, to make art. So the freedom to do something extraordinary, you had to have, you know, a gift of talent like, you know, Raphael or Michelangelo, you know, uh, El Greco. I mean, these artists were able to, th through their genius, uh, to impart something extraordinary and meaningful and necessary about the human experience. But the majority of art in those periods was governed by a process of expectation. As you come up through, you know, the 19th century, um, you, you start to see, you know, early instances, you know, Odilon Radon, Van Gogh, um, you know, Gauguin, the, 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 the Impressionists um, start to break free and individuality, the idea of human uh, identity being, being part of the absolute that art needed to be uh, starts to come, really come into the fold in, in uh, the 19th century. And that completely breaks with Cezanne, who you know, has everything to do with what happens with Matisse and Picasso that come to be at the same time, you know, that revolution and in, in that um, relationship that was very competitive between Picasso and Matisse, going back and forth, sort of butting heads at, uh, around exper experimentation, right? And th that, again, that's where art, is defining culture at large versus culture at large defining art. And that's, that's really a the 20th century, right? With, glo with globalization, the industrial revolutions, um, the sort of interdependency as that grows, the interdependency around the world, um, you know, th that reaches a boiling point in the last 15 years because of the internet, right? Because now we live globally with each other. You're in Japan. I'm in, you know, I'm in New York, in the United States. I mean, our, our relationship is, is as real as if we were neighbors. And the, the whole relationship was, you know, came to be on the internet through social media. So now, what I, you know, to get back to what art is, sorry for that little tangential takeoff, um, to me, art is and always has been 
this combination of record and an access mode, a deeper access mode into necessary dialogues about the time and place, the issues of the time and place, the glories of the time and place, the pains and sufferings of the time and place, that all that comes to a head in art. And, and in that way, you know, art is both a record, but it's also both a great influencer on the transition from gener generation to generation culturally. You know, you see the influence of pop art and how that, you know, has over, I mean, pop art, Andy Warhol in the factory mentality, the multiple print, the, you know, the, the idea of a subtle variation on a theme, that's, that begins with, with Andy Warhol. His legacy is that. And that is what you're seeing right now in, um, look, if you go to Rarible, you know, you're going to see cyberpunks in pixelated cyberpunks. And there's going to be 2,300 of them with a subtle variation. That's Andy Warhol. Okay. That's art history, you know, sinking its teeth into the moment. Now, does the maker of the, cy the, the cyberpunk or the collectible kitty know that what they're doing is a direct result of what Andy Warhol contributed to art history and to the culture at large? Probably not. But because that disseminated through the machinery of culture from Andy Warhol's conception, here we are with a dominant um, sort of creative uh, category, if you will, in the NFT market. So there's relevance to that crypto kitty. There's relevance to that cypherpunk art, historically speaking, through the lineage that goes back to Andy Warhol and, and pop art in general. Last thing I would say about what is art, and I, I think we could always talk about what is art, but you know, my, my basic comment on it is it is a deeper access mode. If it's being, for me, if art is a, a deeper access mode, is a moment of entanglement between a viewer and a statement. And that entanglement will, for, to a greater or lesser degree, depending on the success of that work to relate, to be relatable to a particular viewer. And every viewer will bring a different level of relatability to it. All of those differing experiences between the viewer and the work are creating the bits and pieces of a dialogue, expanding upon a dialogue and bringing it from that viewing of that work into other, their other realms, into their life. You know, and I, I believe that art tends to register subconsciously, oftentimes greater in a greater way, in a more important way, than it does consciously in the moment that you're viewing a work. And if that idea that art is not an object of beauty, I don't like that. I don't like the thought of art just being an object, which is another reason why I love the NFT, because it's, it's completely immaterial. It's a deeper access mode. And if that deeper access mode has the aesthetic look of what people consider art as an object of beauty, 
that's fine. But that's, that does not make it an object of beauty absent of a platform for expanding upon necessary dialogues of our time and place. That's, uh, that's a lot to digest. It's interesting. Uh, at the end there where, uh, you know, you're saying it, you try to create some entanglement. Uh, and earlier today, we talked about uh, the project for the psychology department at St. John Fisher College. That project, how, how long have you been thinking about that? Is that a, a new thing or that you've been thinking about how art can help people for, for many years or? The source of that thought process for me uh, goes back to an experience I had as an analog artist. Uh, there was a tragedy in, in Newtown, Connecticut. Uh, there was um, a, a young 20-something-year-old man with mental health issues, severe mental health issues, uh, went into an elementary school, uh, shot his way into an elementary school and killed 20 children about between the ages of five and seven and five teachers. And at the time, this was 2012, at the time, you know, my, my children were always big fans of, you know, their dad being an artist. They like to go to my shows and whatnot. And my son said to me, dad, you should make them some, some art and maybe it'll make them less sad. And it was like a beautiful moment between my son and I. And I, in that moment, I thought, you know what? I don't know what's going to come of this, but I'm going to follow my son, my son's intention, and I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And so, I uh, took a, I took a sabbatical from work at the time, and spent about three months developing a collection of meditations that I thought, when you think about the pain and suffering, right, of a family grieving the loss of a child in such a difficult, violent way, I thought that you, I wouldn't want to put, I wouldn't want to use like a literal depiction of the, the loved one who was lost. I thought it needed to be very spiritual or enchanted in the sense that it allowed the transformation of the space of grieving, like within the concept of grief in the context of living in a home where your child is now missing, that if there was going to be something referencing that child's life, that it should be something that was transformative and light and, you know, brings somebody to a place of like, you know, pure memory where the work itself doesn't interfere with the process of grieving or the process of seeing in memory that person who was lost. So these works, 26 of them, unfortunately, um, I made them all. They were all uh, produced at the time. I produced them on copper plates and I was using candles as the sort of active vigil for the, for the, the victims. You, uh, the first step in the process of making these works again, going back to last week, referencing they were all photo documented in the end, was using a, a candlelight as a painting tool on the metal. Um, and then from there, you know, working with other things. But that, all, that being said, when, when it was done, I, I brought the collection to Newtown Town Hall. 
and where they had received hundreds of thousands of, you know, gifts for the families. And I said, here, I left this with them. And I got back in my car and I started driving home. And by the time I got an hour away from Newtown, driving home, I got a call from the mayor of Newtown um, saying that they opened the, the, the boxes and they're overwhelmed. And they asked me uh, to, if I would give them a second collection, they were, gonna, they were going to give the work to the families. And then the second collection was going to be held permanently as the uh, memorial for the tragedy at Newtown Town Hall, where it still today uh, hangs on the walls as the memorial. And then I had, you know, uh, it was an overwhelming experience for me because then I started receiving lots of communications and letters, uh, just heartbreaking letters in, uh, from the parents of the lost children. And uh, I, you know, I still to this day, I have some uh, pen pal relationships with the parents of those lost children. And it was a transformative moment for me. Like what happened as a direct response to my child's, you know, disbelief in what happened and his belief in his father to help just became something that I needed to keep doing. Um, that I realized that it was genuinely possible to make a difference in individual lives. Even if, you know, even if you don't get to be a famous artist or a super successful artist that's known everywhere, like that, that is not important. It never has been because the, I don't even think of myself as an artist. I think of myself as an activist and a, and a, and a contributor to the dialogues and in some way always trying to make a difference. And, and that was really where it stuck with me. And, and I haven't given up since that it, it was the most important thing I could do with my life was to just keep looking at other people's needs and trying to contribute to a, the solutions or possible solutions, um, you know, through acts of dialogue. It's an interesting story. And I guess it depends how you define, you know, successful. It's not always about uh, how many people know your name, but if you're helping people that need help, that's, it's not much more important than that. Yeah, it's good. Uh, what else? What else? I was going to ask you, uh, who who has had an influence on your art like any of the people but i think i'll save that for next time and we'll maybe wrap up with uh, advice for new nft artists uh do you have any any tips on uh, how people can get started or how you keep up to date there's there's so many things going on in the world of nfts any any advice for people i don't think it's time yet for advice about the approach to the NFT world, because it's so young. But I would say if I was giving advice to a young artist, not just an NFT artist, it, it, and it would, it's the same advice that you know uh, a writer would give another writer or a young, an older writer would give a young writer or an older musician would give a young musician. Um, voice matters. Your voice, your voice needs to be your voice. I, I know that's it's an oversimplification, but artistic identity is really about the honesty and integrity with which you're speaking to other people, whether it's visually, musically, or linguistically, that if 
if there's an honesty, if there's an integrity, there's going to be uniqueness. And that's really you being yourself in this time and place and contributing through your lens. Um, you know, again, I, I represent and I'm, I'm interested in, you know, in helping develop this NFT space for fine artists. The struggle to develop the NFT space for fine artists uh, is going to be shared by many. And, you know, so the idea of the other types of creators that are here, like, you know, people into the collectibles or anime or virtual reality, uh, video clips. I mean, everybody is going, there's going to be a lot of, you know, there's going to be a lot of people that are just running into the space for the money grab and they're, you know, copying and pasting and, you know, doing what other people are doing. But I think for the integrity of the space, the health of the space, I, I hope to see, you know, over time, everybody bringing their genuine self, you know, to the space. And um, it, that, that's the most important thing I could say right now is don't think that because bored Elon on Rarible has sold 50, you know, ether worth of this, that that's what you should make. Like that's not going to develop the NFT art for in, in the fine artist um, sort of angle. It's not sustainable anyway, right? It's not sustainable. And, and, and ultimately it's unhealthy because you, you know, you want the NFT to, to become as respected of a marketplace as the analog, you know, Sotheby's. I mean, in, in the long run, it can be in the long run. It's not now. Right now, it's the Wild West. And right now, there's, you know, everybody thinks it's just the next money grab. And, it, you know, the real work that could be done and will be done is going to be done over time. So I would just offer that as advice to anybody coming in, rather than just try to rush in and, you know, and, and make a quick buck. If you are an artist, think about your identity five years from now, what you contribute to the space, you know, in retrospect, that, that your identity shines, N not that you were here, just that you were here and you played yeah. the game. It's good advice. Okay, I think we'll, we'll wrap it up there, Henry. Uh, thank you very much. Bye.